0: and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon.
1: And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK.
0: Welcome to our summer 2018 mini-series, Victorian Adaptations, Adapting the Victorians.
1: This is episode one of the mini-series, and today we're asking, what is adaptation?
0: The sun is shining, presumably, maybe. We're recording this ahead of time, so it's actually grey today. Uh, The skies are blue, it's warm, and everybody wants to be outside. It's summertime, and what better opportunity to talk about adaptations? So I know this sounds probably like a kind of a strange choice for a summer mini series, but I think that most people, uh, certainly undergrad me way too many years ago, um, was familiar with the Victorians primarily because of adaptations of their work. And so I thought that diving in and exploring not only the way we adapt the Victorians, but also the way the Victorians adapted other periods and their own cultural productions, may be a really enriching way to get to know the period a little bit better and to understand its writers on a new level.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, every time I'm trying to explain to someone who Anthony Trollope is, I say, you'll have seen the ITV version of his Dr. Thorne. So I think it's something that we... It's something that we jump to, even if it's not conscious.
0: hmm Yeah. So, um, but what actually counts as an adaptation is one of the first questions that I think we should tackle. So, at its most basic definition, an adaptation is a work of literature or art that is adapted from one medium, like the novel, to another, like film, television, webcomic, etc., and adaptation studies, which we'll be drawing on throughout the mini-series to talk about these things, is the study of such adaptations. Yeah, I think that covers the basic definition. I I looked up the OED's definition and while accurate, it was not exactly illuminating.
1: Yeah, I think there's always going to be some kind of some kind of complication that in practice it's a lot more complex.
0: Yes. Yeah. So we tend to go straight to novel to film adaptations, but there's a lot more going on in the world of adaptation studies. So when we're talking about adaptation, we're not just talking about creators um, paying homage to things that they like or trying to recreate them in a different format. We're also talking about the um, political and aesthetic implications and cultural implications of that kind of recreation. It's really kind of a divisive issue sometimes. There are people that really care about uh, fidelity, which we'll talk about later. So this idea that we need to stay true to the original text but also, as somebody who does the kind of adaptation work, your, your work can be viewed in really gendered ways. So I'll link to an important Twitter thread I came across recently in the show notes, which is talking about um, fan fiction, um, which is, I think, definitely a kind of adaptation and has implications for our discussion. Um, so take a look at that if you're interested in sort of the wider world of adaptation studies discourse and conversations
1: yeah it's the first question you always ask whenever there's a film adaptation of a book isn't it it's how does it compare to the book what does it change what does it keep the same
0: yeah and as i think we'll talk about more over this mini-series that's not really a fair question for us to ask
1: yeah because there's some quite i think there's a tendency especially with. i'm trying to say this in in a non-loaded way but there's a tendency especially for younger people who people in their teens who are really into reading to say "Ah, the book's always better Mm -hmm. because it seems like what you're supposed to say if you're an intellectual and i don't think it's necessarily true
0: no and i think that adaptation studies as a field in general is trying to move away from such sort of binary like book versus film ways of thinking about this. So we'll get into this discussion a little bit more, but first I wanted to take a quick trip around the world of Victorian adaptations. In 1837, Charles Dickens' posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club adapts a few different forms, including the sentimental travel narrative and the 18th and early 19th century serialisation of popular forms like Penny Dreadfuls
1: and reruns of classic novels. According to Philip Allingham, by the end of 1838, no less than 26 adaptations of Pickwick had graced the boards of London's minor theatres three stage adaptations by William Lehman Reed, T. W. Moncrief, and Edward Sterling appeared even before the novel had finished its serial run.
0: Between 1848 and 1882, eight stage versions
1: of Jane Eyre ran in Britain and the US. In 1879 80 Walkie Collins adapted his play The Red Vial into a novel, Jezebel's Daughter. Over the years, he also adapted several of his novels to the stage, including No Name. In 1888,
0: John William Waterhouse adapted Tennyson's 1832 poem, The Lady of Shalott, to canvas, in his wonderful painting of
1: the same name. And In 1908, so a little bit after our period, the first silent film adaptation of one of Shakespeare's works, The Tempest, was produced by Percy Stowe. And
0: finally, in 1915, Mary Elizabeth Braddon's Lady Audley's Secret was first adapted to film by American filmmakers, and she saw a showing of this the next year when it reached the UK.
1: I forget she lived so long.
0: I know, she was alive when my great-grandfather was born. Blows my mind. Um, So a lot of this episode today, I'm going to be drawing on the work of Camilla Elliott, who is one of the foremost Victorian studies adaptation scholars and just adaptation studies scholars in general. So I believe that she has a doctorate in Victorian literature, but her her, uh, research and her publications have taken her more and more into the world of adaptation studies. Having done an exam in adaptation studies, I found her work to be especially useful um, and to really sum up the field in ways that helped me get a grasp on this different way of thinking about media. So I've got a few pointers from her to cover, um, and then we'll just kind of build on those. She writes, quote, The Victorians adapted not only the works of their own day to other media, but also the works of prior periods and other cultures to their own, including the Judeo-Christian Bible, Greek literature, medieval art and poetry, Arthurian legend, ballads of Robin Hood and other British folklore, and Shakespearean plays. Adaptation scholars can learn from this Victorian history of adaptation. The film adaptations that have constituted the core of adaptation studies did not begin with the birth of film, but grew out of Victorian interart, adaptations, and intermedial technologies. Indeed, a tendency to study adaptation across media to understand differences between media rather than as a historical continuum across forms has led to ahistorical field myths, such as the notion that Dickens is, quote, cinematic when Joss March has shown that Dickens is cinematic only and insofar as he responded to pre-cinematic technologies and entertainments, such as magic lantern optics. Conversely, whenever cinema resembles Dickens, cinema should be dubbed literary, rather than Dickens being anachronistically dubbed cinematic. She adds at a different point in this essay, which I have linked in the show notes, that adaptation studies and Victorian studies already have a great deal in common. They are both robustly interdisciplinary, with deep roots in literary studies. So I wanted to highlight Eliot's statements here because I think they, one, they illustrate the extent to which Victorians were just incorporating adaptations as part of their everyday artistic endeavors. So we had plays to novels and novels to plays and poems to paintings and sculptures to stories and back and forth, these sorts of what she calls inter-art adaptations that make use of emerging technologies like the camera for example to think about art and what it means and literature and what it means by playing around with how it appears in the world if that makes sense
1: yeah and i think we've talked before about commonplace books i think the victorian's are kind of constantly adapting things i i get the sense that there there aren't such stringent lines between different forms as there are maybe today.
0: Yeah, I don't know if we've talked about this extensively, but for example, the Victorians adapted to lots and lots of different kinds of texts and to children-friendly versions. This started actually right before the Victorian period, at the end of the Romantic period, in the interregnum. If you've ever heard the word boldlerize, it comes from the name of a prominent uh, Shakespearean adapter Thomas. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah because he was all about making it appropriate for children. And There's a kind of sense of... Sorry. There's a kind of... Well, I was going to say censorship, but that's a very loaded term as well.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah he... Um, well, so if you've never read the original Shakespeare, one, you should, but two, it's full of body humor, um, to put it lightly. And I think part of what Boldler was doing was cleaning it up for um more religious friendly religious and child friendly consumption um there's statistics that say that every house had like a bible and a copy of shakespeare throughout the 19th century and that might be the only books they had so um several people thought it was really important to make sure that shakespeare was uh, more compatible with the bible sanitizing yeah
1: yeah, I've seen it phrased as well as making it more appropriate to women and children. And there's a lot of... I've just been reading something from my thesis, which is about things being appropriate for women and children. And we, we can't handle some of the raunchy things that men can, basically.
0: Yeah, so the Victorians had this idea. This is something I'm writing about in my dissertation, um, that books, reading in general, could act like medicine and, by extension, like poison. And so if you didn't have the constitution to deal with some of the ingredients in them, um, they could poison you or they could ruin you. Um, And this was particularly popular rhetoric when talking about the reading habits of women and children and the working classes.
1: There's a quotation I've come across that I always like to repeat because it's someone who says that a guy has, he's read so much and so much varied but bad stuff that he's become a sausage of a man. (laughs) That's great. The implication being, I think, that sausages, especially at this time, made up all kinds of random meat that you probably don't want to eat.
0: And contaminants, because we didn't... The Victorians didn't have the sort of um, food and drug legislation and regulation that we do, and so there, it was a really big problem that you would get like sawdust that's a filler, or even things that are worse than that in your food.
1: Yeah, huge problem in that time.
0: So maybe we should give everyone a sense of the um <clears throat> excuse me give everyone a sense of the kind of adaptations we'll be talking about in our episodes this summer with a quick rundown in our second miniseries episode we will be talking about victorian adaptations of the middle ages and arthurian legends by focusing on poetry um, and i will be bringing on my friend and colleague katie Jo la riviere who is a phd candidate here at the University of Oregon in uh, medieval literature to help us talk about that.
1: For the third episode in this mini-series, we're going to be looking at Victorian adaptations of the Middle Ages through books. So we will be focusing for that on the Kelmscott Chaucer, which is the press that was established by William Morris and they're beautiful books, so we'll definitely be talking about some of the imagery.
0: Oh, they're so cool. I got to see some... uh glimpses of them at rare book school last year and the year before and i just want to i don't know what i want to do they're so gorgeous i just want to live next to one and look at it all the time
1: yeah i i'm lucky enough to have been to the well my best friend lives in walthamstow where william morris was from so i've been to his house and they've got them there they're gorgeous
0: um and if we have time we might um talk also about his participation in the arts and crafts movement and the way that that is um, engaging with other historical periods and maybe adapting them to. In our fourth episode in this mini series, we will be talking about adaptations of the Middle Ages and beyond in Victorian art. And I will be bringing on another friend of mine, the newly minted Dr. Anna Wager. Congratulations, Anna, to help me talk about all things Victorian art and art history, since it's something that I haven't actually had that much experience Experience in up till now. That one will likely be a two-parter because there's so much in the art world to talk about, especially in terms of adaptation. With episode six, we are going to turn to modern adaptations of the long 19th century, starting with a discussion of neo-Victorian
1: and steampunk fiction. After that, we're going to be talking a little bit about Film adaptations of Victorian things.
0: Of which there are very, very many.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how I'm going to... I've not decided yet how I'm going to narrow that down, but I'm sure it will work. I have to be brutal.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can even just talk about the ones you like leave the rest of them to the wayside. Then we'll turn in miniseries episode eight to a discussion of adaptations of Victorian works in graphic novel and comic formats, which I'm really looking forward to. Finally going to
1: finally going to read The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen for this. So cool. In episode nine we're going to talk about T V adaptations of Victorian work. So we'll be talking a lot about the famous BBC adaptations. I think they're the most well-renowned, one thing the BBC's doing well.
0: Um, And then either in a second part of episode 9 or in an episode all of its own, we haven't decided yet, um, we'll be talking about YouTube adaptations of Victorian things. There have been some really exciting ones coming out recently and some really great ones that you should know about.
1: Yeah, weirdly enough, this is the first thing I thought of when I thought of Victorian adaptations.
0: I think that some of the most interesting and important adaptations right now are happening on YouTube um, or in other new media formats so not film not novels although those continue to be great as well.
1: Absolutely yeah then we'll join it all back together for a final wrap up episode
0: yeah so we'll probably be for some of these since we're switching to a weekly format for the summer you might we might be hosting individually for a few of them. So you might uh, just hear from Eleanor one week or just hear from me on another week, but in in the final episode, we're going to pull it all back together and uh, chat about how the miniseries went and what we've learned and all of that great stuff. I wanted to close out today with, um, since most people think adaptation and their minds go to novel to film, Um, some of the data about Victorian film adaptations. So the links I've pulled together for you and the show notes are a little bit dated, but um, what they're saying is also supported by the research that I've done about adaptation studies, which is that one, Victorian novels are among the most adapted to film of any novels of any period ever, and two, that Victorian authors are among the most frequently adapted, period. So, according to Forrest Wickman with The Slate, 13 of the top 20 authors who are most frequently adapted to film are Victorians.
1: I would say 14, because I would count Chekhov as Victorian. Oh, yeah, I forgot to look up Chekhov. (laughs) I'm just a weird person who's very interested in Russian literature. And, yeah, he's... I think he does in like 1910
0: okay for some reason i was placing him early 20th century so not that far off but um i also didn't look up his dates so yeah 14 of the top 20. um so the list uh 1904
1: was his death so even i thought he. oh nice yeah. longer than he did
0: um so the list the, at the top of the list is william shakespeare with 831 film adaptations as of 2011. So as I said, these sets are a little bit dated, but still give you a real sense of what we're dealing with. Chekhov has 320, Dickens has 300, Alexander Dumas has 243. Let's see. Um, other notable authors include Oscar Wilde with 181, Jules Verne with 143, Arthur Conan Doyle with 220. So, I'm just noticing there are, like, no... Okay, like, there's one woman on this list?
1: Yeah. Just Agatha Christie.
0: Jane Austen should certainly be on
1: this list. If this is just films, I think if there was a similar list for TV series, Jane Austen would be right up there. Yeah.
0: Well, and also... The Brontes have quite a few adaptations yes. to their names. Um, I'll see if I can find some more updated and more uh,
1: in- inclusive data. But yeah, literally the top ten, eight of the top ten are Victorian.
0: Yeah. So, um, And I think if we were to add in women, that would remain true. So I guess in closing, let's maybe return to that mention of fidelity that we briefly teased at the beginning of the episode. As I suggested earlier, adaptation studies has really struggled to move away from questions of fidelity or of whether or not an adaptation is true to its quote-unquote original text, Um, and instead to think about each adaptation as an entirely new work of art that might be in conversation with saying something about or rethinking the quote-unquote original. Linda Hutchin, who is a major adaptation studies theorist, notes that everything from board games to amusement parks can count as adaptations. And those of you who have been to, for example, a Harry Potter-themed amusement park have firsthand experience with that.
1: It's a huge thing at the moment in the UK is a lot of people are opening up. For example, in York, where I used to live, they've opened I think it's unofficial, an unofficial Harry Potter-themed shop, and there are Harry Potter-themed bars that I think are in the process of getting sued by Warner Brothers. <laughs>
0: yes, so lived experiences, or these kind of created, uh, curated experiences, can also count as adaptations. So if we're thinking about that kind of broader context of adaptation, we need to maybe start thinking about the implications of engaging in that. So, for example, if you've been listening for a long time, you'll have heard Eleanor and I talk about the kind of darker side of the Victorian period, the colonialism, the poverty, the uh, sexism, the lack of legislation on behalf of women, and when we're engaging in experiences or retellings or reimaginations of the 19th century, what do we do about
1: that context? It's a difficult question. I can always remember I, when I was an undergrad, some friends and I set up a Victorian society because I was that kind of very cool undergrad. But someone came up to our stall at Freshers' Fair once and said, why are you glamorising the Victorians when they were involved in all of this colonialism and the politics wasn't very good? It was a really tricky question because we were kind of set, trying to say we're not... You know, we're approaching this with an awareness that that wasn't great and that there were some some things that we disagree with quite strongly but it doesn't mean we shouldn't be interested in the literature and art I don't know, It's a really strange experience.
0: Yeah, and I think it's something that we have to grapple with continually. So, for example, last fall I was teaching a Dracula course um, to a bunch of undergrad non-majors and trying to think about um, some of the texts that we encounter are informed by racist assumptions or don't question the colonialism or things like that and so why do we study them do i mean in part we can learn from that like learn from the mistakes of people that came before us but i think also it gives us a more nuanced sense of how individual people individual authors uh imagined themselves interacting with these ideas and in these contexts and even challenging them without maybe coming out right and being revolutionary but still sort of working through the ideas and recognizing even their own implicatedness I guess um recognizing in moments of gosh
1: I've just lost no I know what you're trying to say
0: Like, there are certainly some texts that are just really, mm, I wouldn't necessarily want to study them or give time to them. They have not aged well at all. But then in other cases, I think it's worth taking the moment to um, confront the realities of the past and to work through our own response to those and, and use them to broaden our own understanding of the world.
1: Yeah, I think it can be approached responsibly without saying that's fine because that's what people thought. You can come from the approach of, well, no, not everyone thought that and some people at the time criticised it, but it was a prevalent enough thought and we need to work through why that was and what the implications are of that.
0: Yeah, so I think that um, the best adaptations, some of which we'll try to highlight for you this summer, do that. They're very mindful of the um, problematic aspects of what they're adapting, as well as the cool or the the pretty or the um, fascinating and exciting parts of the past that they're drawing on. Scholars like Christine Ferguson say that uh, any sort of adaptation of this kind, like a steampunk adaptation, is necessarily political, even if you're just focusing on the aesthetics, even if you're just interested in the goggles and the brass gears, um, you're still engaging politically by participating. And so these sorts of adaptations give us a way to participate in discussions about that political engagement. So I think maybe on that note, we will... Uh, close out today's episode. We will be back soon with our second episode on Victorian poetry and adaptations of the Middle Ages.
1: Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Yeah.
0: Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dunbill. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us.
1: After the ball, come by Mr. George J. Gatkin. A little maiden climbs an old man's feet, begs
0: For this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses.
1: Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. And our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.